G'day and welcome to Wayne's Wonderworld. This podcast will mainly be about musicians, entertainers and pretty much anyone else that I find interesting. I hope that you enjoy the podcast. Please head to waneswonderworld.com and please feel free to follow me on my Facebook page which is Wayne's Wonderworld. Ted Egan, welcome to Wayne's Wonderworld. G'day there Wayne. G'day Ted, how's it going? Pretty good. I'm here in Alice Springs uh, talking to you in Perth or WA and uh, uh, it's a big distance between us but uh, there's a great level of affection. Uh, I live in Alice Springs and my wife Neris lives here with me and uh, we met in WA and so uh, we have. Uh, I'm looking forward to this talk together. So let's do it. Fantastic Ted. Well, welcome to Wayne's Wonderworld. So let's start with our first question, and that is, who are you, Ted? Who am I? Well, I'm Ted Egan. I was, uh, I'm 88 years of age, born in uh, suburban Melbourne in 1932, the son of Grace Brennan, who married Joe Egan in 1922, and they had five fortunate children, and uh, the children were all beneficiaries of uh, kind, loving, uh, poor, but... Uh, honest parents who uh, sacrificed everything in order that we would have a better chance in life and uh, the five of us uh, have we've we've gone on to good happy uncomplicated lives and uh, uh, I'm forever grateful for the parentage that I enjoyed in Melbourne but I was always uh, always encouraged by my parents to uh, learn to stand on my own two feet so I Although I was well-educated, I had a Victorian matriculation at age 15, which was unheard of. I uh, did a couple of years in uh, preparation, um, worked as a bank johnny in Melbourne for a while, then uh, decided that I'd go up to Queensland for some experience, worked on a horse stud and then a sheep station to get a bit of pastoral experience. Came back to Melbourne, went digging spuds, for three months and um, earned incredible money doing that <laughs> and uh, uh, had a pretty healthy check. I gave half to my mum and I headed off with my mate Ronnie Smith to Darwin in 1949. Ted, can you tell me where your interest in music came from? Well, um, we, uh, we, were, we were lucky. As I said at the outset, I was reared by two parents who were victims of the 1930s depression. I was born in 1932, and for the first five years of my life, my father was out of regular work. He used to ride his bike into Melbourne every day to seek to get a job and sometimes would get a day's work. Otherwise, he'd be on what in those days was called the susso, the sustenance, which today is called the dole. Uh, but uh, we were... We were never hungry, we were never cold, we were always loved and uh, we were reared in a, where an atmosphere where we didn't have any money but we knew hundreds of songs and my, I had three, our family was five children, three girls, then me, then my younger brother Tim and the three girls in our family all could play the piano, two extremely well and one who learnt the piano was uh, nowhere near as good as the other two but they could play by ear. And we had a piano given to us by an aunt, and uh, my father played the button accordion pretty well, uh, but my parents both encouraged us to sing and to enjoy music. And then the war came along eventually, and my dad was in full-time work. And, of course, with our 
all our Irish Catholic relations, we uh, our house was always bursting with the seams with young nephews and a few nieces who joined the armed services and were going to or coming from the war. And uh, so we there was lots of music around our house. And uh, uh, so I, oh, wow. uh, to this day, I tend to sing whether people want me to or not because we were... We were we were read on music and we were all show offs who'd had their various party pieces and uh, life was great. Couldn't have had a better childhood. Ah, okay. And can you tell me how you ended up on a ship to Fremantle? Uh, well, I I went to Darwin and then then uh, uh, went to Darwin in '49. Then at the end of 1950, I had a cousin working on one of the state ships that used to ply the West Australian coast from Darwin to Fremantle, uh, calling in at all the ports like um, Broome, Wyndham, Derby, uh, Onslow, uh, uh, etc. And uh, so he stowed me away on, <laughs> on the trip. <laughs> took me for a trip down to meet my rallies in, in Perth. Wow. And uh, <laughs> I had a great time. And uh, then did a wheat harvest at uh, Wagen, down in uh, the southwest there. And uh, then after that, I stowed away with another cousin back to <laughs> Melbourne Goodness. with my on, on the Duntroon. And uh, we got back to Melbourne and suddenly realised I was homesick. But I wasn't homesick for Melbourne. I was homesick for Darwin, which I'd come to love as a place and still do. Wow. So uh, <laughs> I made my way back to Darwin and... Uh, uh, lived for many many years in the top end thereafter, yeah. Right, so Darwin became your new home. Yeah, uh, and into the second bottle, or sometimes the third bottle of red wine, I'm a Darwin boy. I live in Alice and I love Alice, and it's a, it's a good town in many respects, but I, as I say in one of my songs, there's a place where I misspent my youth. Darwin <laughs> is its name, and... Uh, I tend to write songs to express my feelings, uh, Wayne, so okay. you'll have to live with me. That's all right. And can you tell me about your time in Yukawa? I went there very late in life. I, I spent, uh, I was a head teacher at Groot Island in the Gulf of Carpentaria. And um, because I had pretty strong affiliations with the Aboriginal people of northeast Arnhem Land, uh, there was a a proposal to start a big bauxite mine and there was going to be going to, there were going to be lots of controversial issues so I I left Groot Island and I went to live just near Yerikala which was a Methodist mission in those days oh. uh, serving the uh, the people of Arnhemland who call themselves Yongu. Yongu is not the name of a tribe but that's a word it just means basically we we who we who are here you know it's Yongu and so I worked among them for the next three years as the mining town started and the, all the problems started to uh, unfold and reveal. And um, so, yeah, that was my time at Yurikala, 66 to 69. Oh, okay. Wow. But uh, a lot happened in between the, in the years between, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, what major events did happen in that time? Well, probably the... Probably the most important thing that happened to me in my life was that uh, when I went to Darwin, I was a very strong practicing Catholic, and uh, I was also a boy from Melbourne who fancied himself as an Aussie rules football player. And uh, so we used to kick around, kick a footy around. We lived in a camp 
which is where they subsequently built the Catholic Cathedral. Oh. And I uh, I used to kick a footy round and uh, getting ready to participate in the local competition. And out would emerge these Aboriginal fellas, and were they any good? Wow. And uh, I said, gee, who do you fellas play for? And I said, we don't play in the local competition. <laughs> so I, I started with another team. We, we started off another team, but I had these uh, Tiwi Aboriginal people on, on my mind, and I was very uh, pleased when the Bishop of Darwin called me in one day to the Bishop's Palace, and um, he said, I want you. Uh, he said, I know who you are. He said, you uh, you attend the church and uh, you uh, you play for works and jerks in the footy. He said, and I want you to start a new team to enable the Tiwi Aboriginals from Bathurst and Melville Islands to uh, have a chance to show just how good they are in the local competition. Wow. So that, I think, was the most important thing that happened in my life. I was one of the two founders with a young priest named Father Collins of a team called St Mary's Football Club in Darwin, which is incredibly famous to this day. Uh, that was uh, 1952 we started that team. Oh, wow. And um, what's that? That's... Uh, uh, 48, 70 years ago, Jeez. and in that time they've won 35 premierships, <laughs> and they've produced all the all the champion players that everyone in Australia knows about. All the, and particularly WA, all the Riolis and all the Longs and all of Basil Campbell and the Vagonas, all derived from St Mary's Footy Club in Darwin. And the fact that I was one, of, I was the first captain and first premiership captain of St Mary's Footy Club in Darwin. And that has stood me in amazing stead ever since. Uh, principally that one day after the footy in Darwin, when St Mary's, a new team, had a win. And I was I was the much, much maligned, but sometimes revered uh, West Australian man, Paul Haslack, used to visit Darwin regularly and because he was interested in Aboriginal matters and also footy, and he he heard me give the pep talk in the Tiwi language at half time, and he wow. he came to me after the game. He said, he said you were interesting. He said, uh, would you like to work among Aboriginals? I said, my bloody earth, I would. And uh, so he said, come and see me on Monday at my office down. So I went down and I joined what was in those days called the Native Affairs branch, and uh, I was. Create, I was uh, classified as a cadet patrol officer and oh, I, wow. was declared, I was declared to be a protector of Aboriginals but the, the one, who, one who needed protecting was me because I was, uh, <laughs> I was young and uh, inexperienced in bush life and uh, in my job I suddenly found myself needing to know and understand the vast Australian landscape and my many Aboriginal friends who developed over those initial years were always kind to me and my life was full of uh, learning and laughter and um, I marvelled at being paid to, to do the job. <laughs> so that's uh, th that started me on a, a career that went on for the next 22 years doing various things in different outback postings and um, life was, was fantastic and uh, but eventually, uh, after, and I finished up working for another famous West Australian, there are so many of them, uh, Dr. H.C. Nugget Coombs, who was the um, 
and the man who started the Commonwealth Bank, the Reserve Bank, the uh, he was the director of post-war reconstruction. He was head of the Treasury and uh, just a truly amazing, dedicated public servant. I worked for him for three years from 69 to when he appointed me. At, I was at Newcastle still and he wanted me, he said to me, come and work for me in Canberra. So I went to live in Canberra, but I, during the next three, four years, I saw more of the Northern Territory than I had in the rest of my life because uh, uh, he wanted to be kept abreast of all the issues around land rights and mining and things affecting the lives of Aboriginal people. So um, that was wonderful. And uh, so I was involved in, um, as a minor player, but uh, I you know, I had had my contribution in the establishment of various principles in Aboriginal affairs. Now, while none of those have been positively brought to fruition, nonetheless, the principle was established that you know, land land rights for Aboriginals is a possibility, and it's still only a possibility despite all the all the things that have happened since. Uh, uh, it's, there's still a lot of work to be done, uh, but. Uh, I realised at that point that I had uh, reached the level where a, a white bloke like me should stand aside and let Aboriginals organise their own lives rather than have the old worn practice of uh, white people who know what's best for you. And uh, I was driving from Wave Hill in the Northern Territory uh, into Catherine, the Northern Territory, having just visited Vincent Lingiari, the famous Gurindji man and I'd broken the news to him that he was going to get a lease over his block of land uh, and uh, I'd broken the wow. news and I thought, time for you to go. So I pulled up the car on the road halfway between Wayfield and Catherine. I wrote a three-line letter, three line letter of resignation and uh, posted it at Catherine <laughs> and, and at that point left the Commonwealth Government. And uh, So um, wow. life went on. Uh, but I knew... I knew what I was doing. I uh, I was a level one public servant on a pretty handsome salary, uh, but it was time to go because I was confident at that point that I could make a living from singing songs because although I'd had this busy life in and around the bush all through the Northern Territory uh, for the preceding 20-odd years, I, I'd met all these larger-than-life characters and participated in all these amazing incidents that uh, began to start me writing songs. And um, here I am 30 albums later talking to you today, Wayne. But uh, in 72, uh, after the Whitlam government had come in and uh, these various principles had been recognised for Aboriginal people, I uh, was I already had at that point, I think for 72... I had two albums, both of which were gold albums, and that was unbelievable in those days. Uh, I don't think even Slim Dusty had a gold album at that point, but I had a couple because <laughs> I used to sell them myself. I'd say to people, uh, want to buy a record, want to wow. buy a cassette, and uh, I, uh, I established quite a reputation in uh, folk and country music circles for selling merchandise quite aggressively, and to this day I... I just remind all of your listeners that I do have a, a web page and I do have a substantial body of merchandise that I'm very happy to keep selling, books and CDs, DVDs, 
you name it, give me a ring. <laughs> oh, that's great uh, there, Ted. Um, can we also talk about, there was a song, I believe, that you recorded, which was called Gurindji Blues. That's right. That's the one I had, uh, when I had visited Vincent on that day uh, in 72, I, I had written the song and we re- recorded it with him and Gullaroy Yunaping, who of national fame. And uh, the three of us went to the studio in Sydney and recorded two songs, the Gurindji Blues about the Gurindji cause and the tribal land about the Yukala land rights cause. And we record, we recorded both of those. Yeah. And um, at that point, uh, I'd sort of embarked on this other career now that I was going to sing songs for a living. And uh, so, yeah, the Gurindji Blues is to this day uh, uh, evokes a fair bit of interest. So every three months or so, I get a letter for, or a request from somewhere May we publish the words of your Gurindji Blues song in in our book magazine or whatever, and uh, so it gets a lot of attention. Wow. And uh, 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 Vincent, I was with Vincent only a couple of days before he died, and he couldn't walk anymore, and he was just about blind. And he he held my hand. And he said, "Sing my song for me, Ted." And so I I just sang it, and I uh, shed a wow. few tears as I uh, as I sang it. But it's it's essentially a uh, well, you might be able to play it on the podcast. As a matter of fact, we're just going to take a quick listen to it now. Long time before Lord Rusty, all about land belonging to Gurindji. Poor bugger black fella this country Long time work, no wages we Work for good old Lord Vasti Little bit flour, sugar and tea For good in ye from Lord Vasti Our poor bugger me Poor bugger me, good in ye. My name Vincent Lengiari Me talk all about good in ye. Dagurago place for we Home for we, good in ye. But poor bugger black full of this country, government boss him talk long we fill you house with electricity, but that wife heal for can't you see, what a creek belong to Lord Bastille, oh poor bugger me. Poor bugger me, Lingiari, still me talk long Gurindji, Dagorago place for we, home for we, Gurindji. Wow, that was fantastic, Ted. I believe that you initially sold around 15,000 copies. Is it true that the proceeds from this uh, helped fund the Aboriginal Tent Embassy? Yeah, that's correct. Because, uh, well, I wasn't responsible for the sales, but I I approved of the move because there was a man named Chicka Dixon, an Aboriginal chap named Chicka Dixon in Sydney, who, who was, I wish he was still alive because he was the... He was the smartest operator I've ever met in Aboriginal affairs, and uh, he was always thoughts ahead of uh, years ahead, and he's thinking of everyone else. And when I did the uh, recording with Gullaroy and Vincent, uh, uh, Chicka, as we called him, Chicka Dixon, uh, said, we want to get this, and we're going to start this tent embassy. And so he... I'm not sure, but it was certainly thousands that he sold, and he would sometimes be given $20 for a 
for a, a little $2 single record uh, as, as a donation and as wow. a because it was attractively packaged. And uh, uh, yes, it certainly did finance the uh, Aboriginal Tent Embassy. And uh, uh, so that's a nice uh, thing to have on my CV. And also, speaking of nicely packaged, I believe that that single was actually one of the first ones from RCA to actually um, be pictured. Um, like to have, say, yeah, pictured well, it, it was. They put it out in a, a very attractive little package because, uh, and I think they put a photo of Gulleroy and Vincent on the label. Yeah. Right, yeah. But uh, I've, I've got the original somewhere, but uh, I wouldn't know where to find it today. But uh, it's, uh, right. it's still around. Anyway, the, yeah, so that's how, then I started off as uh, how do I make a living now that I've given up that job and the superannuation and all that. So I knew where to go. I knew that I would go straight to Alice Springs where, where tourism was at its peak <laughs> in those days and thousands and thousands of mainly Australian tourists would come on recognised coastlines like Casey's from WA uh, Australian Pacific, Centralian tours from Melbourne, and people would come in groups of 40 and 50 to Old Springs uh, for a week, and uh, or Central Australia for a week, and uh, they would camp. And uh, one of the things they would visit the rock, and they would visit all the local sites. And a, a standard night during that week was always the Ted Egan show, and uh, so I would sometimes wow. have you know, eight to ten coachloads of tourists at my show. So I, I did uh, did very well financially and uh, and in terms of uh, recognition as an artist uh, at, at the Stewart Arms Hotel in Alice Springs. And I did my show there for the next 30 years. Uh, I, every year, I would, all through the tourist season, from April to October, I would be there sometimes seven nights a week. And then in the summer, I would go south wow. to uh, to record. I used to record an album every year, and I'd go go to. Uh, and and I'm not uh, seeking to ingratiate myself, but uh, quite a few of my albums were done in Perth, and because uh, 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 I came to identify with the musos in, in Perth, and uh, uh, we still to this day so we're planning. Neris and I are planning a visit to Perth in um, September, October this year to, to uh, celebrate okay. the 40th anniversary of our meeting at 2J, Western Australia, in 1981, and to do another very serious podcast-style recording, but this will be a musical that I've written. But we'll be, we'll be in Perth. Uh, wow. So if any of my folky mates are listening, uh, uh, we want to get in touch with you because we need singers and musos and lots of enthusiasm. We'll have a big... Uh, party and at the same time celebrated our 40th anniversary together. Is it true that you have released 30 albums so far and have recorded over 300 songs? Yeah, yeah. we did a check once and uh, the vast majority of my songs are about people. Right. I I usually don't, well, I invariably don't seek to write songs to put people, anyone down, but I, if I see admirable admirable qualities in a person i i often uh, seek to interview them and uh, ask them intelligent hopefully questions because sometimes you just get that one liner and it's the jam you think gotcha and uh, <laughs> um so I've, I've i write songs about 
Uh, I've never written one about a politician, specifically about a politician, but uh, uh, I write songs about old grandmothers and uh, uh, old drovers and uh, interesting people. They uh, people who were <laughs> liars or rogues or likable crooks or whatever. Wow. So that's the, that's that's I still am on that kick. Uh, we're just at the moment. Uh, hoping to get some mileage for a song that I've written called Our Golden Girls about all the wonderful female athletes we've had in Australia over the many, many years of participation in world sport. And uh, that's with Channel 7 at the moment. Uh, it has no future as a song, okay. but it, if, it, if it can be presented as a film clip with all, all our words now singing behind it, it's a, a bit like Come On Aussie, Come On and Up There Kazali and those, that type of song. Wow. Um, and hopefully with the, with the marvellous images of Shirley Strickland, Marjorie Jackson, Betty Cuthbert and all those. And, and here I go, West Australians again, eh? Betty <laughs> Cuthbert and Shirley Strickland. And, uh, but the WA just does feature so predominantly in Australian life and, uh, and may it ever be like that, yeah. Fantastic. Well, it sounds like everyone I know loves your songs, uh, Ted. Um, now, here comes a tough question for you, but with all the songs that you have recorded, do you have a favourite? I have songs that I I, I, I... I never have a song list when I start my show. Oh, okay. I, I have an opening song called The Characters of the Outback, uh, which contains... It's about six verses about different characters. And some are old, some are young, some are black, some are white, some are male, some are female. And I, because I don't have any any great uh, gimmickry going for me, I don't have strobe lights and I don't dance and I don't have a band and I don't play a conventional musical instrument, I have to watch the eyes for reaction. Right. And I work, out for, I work out from that, the response to those verses... They got that line. They didn't. They missed that line. Yeah, yeah. I know where I gradually go to my show then, and I sing a, a provocative one, and then a serious one, and then a funny <laughs> one, and then uh, just all the time judging what do I do next. So there are songs that invariably work. Um, there are there are probably two that never fail to work and never fail to uh, evoke. A lovely, warm, healthy response. One is the Sayonara Nakamura about Broome, Western Australia, and the Japanese uh, divers in the pearling industry. And the other one is an, about an old Chinese woman in Darwin named Granny. Wow. And I, I, I always like to get a bit of authenticity. And uh, when I chuck in a, you know, a little chorus in Cantonese, you, you just spot <laughs> that one set of eyes in the audience. They say, yes, wow. gotcha. And uh, so I sing great Haigen Kui Hang Do Hongen Kai, Jacken Gao Chu Sam Tohai. And it uh, means nothing to most listeners because the rest of the song is in English. <laughs> and then when I sing Sayonara Nakamura, I say, Kimiga Nemorochi Nishi Australia, Mokai Renusoko Kuni, Itoshiki Furusato, Sayonara, Sayonara Nakamura. And uh, it usually, they invariably go well. Uh, but I've got other songs that I love to sing 
if I've got an audience that can appreciate it, uh, understand it, and like it. And uh, I've one a, a good example is a, a song that uh, I wrote called "The Hungry Fighter." Okay. It's about one of the, one of the old standard uh, boxing tent stories of uh, take a glove, boom, 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 roll up, roll up, over here, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, I wrote it about Ron Richards, arguably the greatest boxer Australia has ever produced. And um, he was an Aboriginal bloke from Roma in Queensland who at one stage was, uh, he was a, a middleweight in terms of actual weight, but he was the middleweight light heavyweight and heavyweight champion of the British Empire wow. in the 1930s. And he beat two Americans who visited Australia and subsequently went back to become world champions. <laughs> and he, he beat both of them easily. Uh, but he finished up punch drunk and a uh, really tragic figure. And I wrote my song. I I was prompted to write after I actually saw him. I saw I was in the Sydney markets and I saw this film I thought that's Ron Richards I know because I knew his face and I he was checking out the rubbish bins and I walked over and I said Doc may I shake your hands and he said yeah so I shook his hand I slipped him 10 bob and uh, he twigged and he said thank you boy and uh, uh, then I wrote my song now it doesn't always work because uh, uh, it's a long song and people people are sometimes a bit mystified by it uh, but I, I'd love to sing it on appropriate occasions. But I do, have, I do have a couple of songs that are in sort of English, but they're in outback English, and I delight in singing them because most audiences haven't got the faintest idea what I'm even talking about. <laughs> the, the one, one especially is called "We I Que I Capramunda," and uh, <laughs> and uh, you, you need to know. You need to know what a wii is and what a kui is and what capramunda means. And uh, <laughs> uh, but it's got it's got lines in it that if you if you're a bushy, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you're not, you scratch it and say, "What in the hell is he talking about?" <laughs> yeah. So so it's a, it's a delight that I don't have a set a fixed set of songs, but I have the choice of, and I because I wrote them all, they're in my mind as photos, and I. As I sing the song, I say, turn the page <laughs> in my mind, and uh, then I go on to verse three, and uh, and uh, uh, don't forget verse five, because yeah, and uh, so I rarely, I occasionally do, but I rarely uh, slip up on words or or whatever. Perhaps if I, I might have had a, a drink too many occasionally, and. Uh, <laughs> If I forget to do verse two or whatever, but uh, uh, no, life's been very good to me, Wayne. Fantastic. Well, it sounds like just from the the timbre of your voice that every song you've done has been recorded with passion and love, and as we've heard, there's always a story behind each song that you make. Yeah, well, the, the best, the, the album that I'm most proud of in the 30 is my Anzex album. Um, and... Uh, I was, I wrote, uh, I did my uh, my album, The Anzacs, 100 Years On, in the year 2013 oh. against the prospect of 
taking it round Australia, getting getting hopefully sufficient recognition for it. Uh, and I was um, very disappointed that that didn't eventuate because I was I was let down quite badly by two bodies: the uh, Australian War Memorial and the uh, Department of Veterans Affairs. And oh, bugger. Department and the Department of Veterans Affairs said, rang me and one this place said, why would you write, why would you do an album like this? I said, well, my mother had three Anzac brothers. How's that for a starter? <laughs> and he said, oh. He said, well, you needn't bother. He said, we're going to cover all this ground and things that the department will be doing. And, and they, they never did. Um, and the War Memorial wrote to me and said, oh, you're only obviously only out to make a quid out of out of the Anzac, so we won't be supporting you in any way. Wow. So it's, um, but it's, I know that uh, I, I recorded it in Perth, and um, here I go again. We recorded the, the principal songs with the brass band that was at the time number one brass band in Australia, that is WA Brass, who, uh, who, um, who practice and perform at the WA showgrounds in Subi there. Yeah. And, um, uh the the recording we did is just first class i was uh, uh it wouldn't have well none of my uh most of my career would have happened without yet another west australian a young fellow named eric kowaski who will be known to many of your listeners because eric was born and raised in perth and he's a uh, classically trained but he delights in uh, uh you know, working in all forms of music, and he is so, he and I are so different, <laughs> in that he he does he writes what I call dots on lines, and I wouldn't know one key from another or one chord from another, but uh, I work with Eric when I want to do a song, and he'll be my musical director in September October this year when we come back to do the the musical Balls and Chains, and uh, Eric's just one of those delightful people who. You just he's just flawless in his knowledge of musical requirements and he he wrote the uh, the parts for the Anzacs. He he'd never worked with the brass band before, but I, I said, Can you do it? He said, oh, I'll I'll have a go. <laughs> so he bought bought all the books on brass band harmonies and with his own um, colossal knowledge he wrote parts and the band band members were geez, who wrote these? Wow, we've never, uh, and that he's just so accomplished, and and the delight is that uh, a lifetime friendships evolved out of Eric's helping me to do all these albums over so many years. So, roll on, WA. Wow, fantastic, Ted. Can you tell me where the idea came from to use an empty beer carton as a musical instrument? Well, I uh, I can't play anything uh, uh, looking like a traditional musical instrument I wish I could but I can't and indeed I don't I don't understand people say to me what key do you sing and I say I don't know <laughs> and uh, uh, what are the chords and I, I wouldn't know what a chord is yeah I, wow. I know I, I know that the chord is desirable to present pleasant music and and uh, I know if I hear if I hear a discordant note at any time I've got a terrific ear for uh, uh, listening to what other people have written or have composed, and uh, I, uh, in my first recordings in Sydney, I was lucky enough to have for the first six albums that I did, 
the services of the renowned guitarist George Guller, whose name will be known to many, you know, people up in especially jazz guitar music. Okay. George Guller is one of the, the world world maestros in uh, jazz guitar playing. And uh, George doesn't do studio work, but he was engaged for my first album, and he loved it. Wow. And he said to me at, at the, one of the breaks, he said, Ted, he said, don't ever let anyone try to teach you the fundamentals of music. He said, you don't understand. You don't know the rules. You break all of them, and it seems to work for you. So <laughs> uh, I, took, I took that as high praise indeed from coming from George Goller. Wow. So, uh, but my, I'm a finger tapper. Uh, I, I played drums in the school band when I was a schoolboy, and um, just, or just a drum. I didn't play a kit of drums. I just played a, a kettle drum, as they were called in the, in the school marching band. Yeah. And um, so I'm a finger tapper, and uh, I tend to at parties. I tend, as I said, I tend to sing whether people want me to or not. <laughs> and so. Uh, I'll just tap away on anything. It's the, oh, usually just the table, and I, I break into song. And I don't need a guitar because I can sing in tune, and uh, I uh, doesn't matter if I start a bit higher, I just sing the song higher today, and I'll sing it lower tomorrow. And uh, uh, whatever whatever key happens on the day, that's the key for me. Wow. So uh, uh, I'm <laughs> I'm a pretty hefty drinker, and uh, I went went to Darwin uh, age seventeen and um, got into pretty serious drinking in Darwin. <laughs> and we used to often, uh, you know, uh, eventually we'd, we'd get big wooden boxes of beer, but eventually they came packed in cardboard boxes. So we'd get a, we'd club in our money, get a carton and uh, a block of ice and get in it and sing a few songs. So <laughs> I used to just grab the carton and I'd tap away on that. And people said, yeah, that's your instrument. And because uh, we all... <laughs> We all drank Foster's beer whenever we could. I began to call my instrument the Foster phone, and um, <laughs> it's uh, it's accompanied me on 30 albums of songs over over 60 years. So uh, I feel pretty good about being the world champion Foster phone player. Have you ever been uh, sponsored by Foster's, uh, Ted? <laughs> <laughs> Interesting question. <laughs> uh, I know that a lot of people have written to Foster's saying, uh, we just heard this very different uh, bloke, you know. Uh, but they, people say to me, "Do Foster sponsor you?" And I say, "No, I sponsor them." Uh, <laughs> there's, there's never been a, there's never been a call to, uh, other than a trip to Canada. I did a trip to Canada for the tourist people bodies, and uh, a few years ago, and they provided quite a few cartons of free Fosters for me to distribute uh, on their behalf and uh, yeah so they did give that free and uh, so um, <laughs> but uh, it, it's just uh, I can sing uh, on a Cooper phone I sing in the key of C and and those on an emu box I suppose I'd sing in the key of E if there is one and uh, <laughs> key of S for Swan <laughs> and occasionally laps into 4X but it, it's just a matter of what you're drinking on the day Wayne fair enough there Ted <laughs> that's, that's called the tuning process oh goodness <laughs> yeah um, moving on a bit in time I believe you once presented a documentary series a fantastic documentary series called This Land Australia what was yeah. this opportunity like for you? 
Well, it was. I loved every minute of it. I was working for a very delightful company who were most uh, uh, progressive. They were most highly organised. They didn't. They were. They were honest. They paid me well. Uh, they said, "Look, let's do this at this series at its best. Uh, if there's a helicopter shot needed, we'll have a helicopter shot, and so on." And so we did thirteen episodes of This Land Australia. Wow. Uh, and I loved every minute of it, and uh, I still have the DVDs and rather nicely the right to sell the DVDs from those days, and uh, um, it was just so enjoyable. You know, we did things like uh, Norfolk Island, Torres Strait Islands, Broome, the Barossa Valley, um, Snowy Mountains, uh, the Tropical North, the Cape York Peninsula, uh, things like that, and uh, uh, we covered enough But sadly, uh, even though it was with Channel 10 and their ratings would go from four, their ratings were dreadful at that time, but when my show came on, their ratings would go from four to 28 straight away because wow. people wanted to specific. <laughs> and then they would, as soon as it was over, they would go back to 14 because a lot of people would then switch off. But Channel 10 elected not to do more than the one series because uh, they were told by their so-called experts that the attention span of an Australian TV viewer is three minutes. So <laughs> something, like the, something like the cricket is perfect in that there's an over lasting three minutes, then a couple of commercials, then another over, then a couple of commercials. And they said, no, there's no room for this one hour show. And uh, so we were discontinued and... Um, uh, no hard feelings, but they, they made it terrible. But we could have gone on for a couple more years because the films that I have, and uh, I can send you a couple if you if you like, uh, they speak for themselves. The quality of the camera work, the sound work, and the the research put into the project just uh, has never been equaled in Australia. And there's one of my favourite songs that I wrote for that This Land Australia, Try to Understand... This land, Australia, take her as she is, her moods, her mysteries, mother of us all, beneath the southern cross, in her frame of peaceful seas. So that goes on from that, and um, uh, it's a song that I love to sing, and people quite often quickly pick up and join in the, the chorus second time round. And, uh, wow. Yeah. So it's a joy to have had experiences like that, which leads to the creation of songs like that, which leads to financial uh, advantage from songs like that that I have enjoyed and continue to enjoy. And um, the absolute pleasure I get from presenting, I, I love to. You know, and I'm a bit like... Uh, my dear old mate Bill Harney, people say to me, oh, have you ever... And I say, I've got a song about that. <laughs> and uh, so uh, I, I, <laughs> I can tend to be a bit overbearing at times, but uh, if people tell me to shut up, I do. Yeah. <laughs> when I saw some clips of the series on YouTube, Ted, it reminded me about the Leyland Brothers. It just had that country feel about it. Yeah, it was a, a different approach. The, the Leyland brothers used to do it from a, aren't we practical young fellows? And yeah. I, I'm not. I, I'm not a, not a bush mechanic or a, not a. I'm, I'm not a 
good. I'm okay, okay as a bushman myself, but I, I'm very aware of what constitutes good knowledge in the bush, and I'm constantly on the lookout for it. And if I see it, I quite often record it in a song. Oh, but okay. uh, my my power in life has always been as an observer, oh. and uh, so our approach was quite different from that of the Leyland brothers, who, uh, who I, I never met, but I uh, I know that they did uh, quite admirable work in the early days, yeah. Fantastic. Now, speaking so much of your music, Ted, I believe in uh, 1995 that you were inducted into the Australian role of renown at the uh, Country Music Awards of Australia. What was yeah. this honour well, like? Oh, it was, uh, uh, as I often do, I was... Uh, a bit bewildered, and I said to them on the day, I said, surely there are people with better qualifications than I for for this award. And they said, well, you're our choice for this year. But um, I I usually take that stance, and uh, not from an egotistical base, but uh, from a pragmatic base, because so, so often real heroes are not recognised. And uh, I've in country music circles, I'll mention a name of a mate of mine who's very well known in WA, Terry Gordon. Ah. And when I, 1995, at that point, I became a member of the group, you know, previous winners. So the the next year they said to me, who would you like to, uh, or who of the following would you give tick for next year's award? So I, I got that first invitation. I wrote back and I said, look, until you, the name Terry Gordon appears on there, I'm not interested in voting. <laughs> so I, I re refrained from voting for the next about 10 years until it took them to recognise that oh, Terry yeah. Gordon had been around country music a lot longer than I and was totally deserving because Terry has done so much in country. He he had a television show going in the in the late 50s. You know, television only started in 56. Oh, wow. And in about 1959, he had a, a television country music show going. Jeez. And he he's toured Australia with all the great artists. He's, he's toured the United States with very um, uh, much approval from American audiences, just presenting his nice basic Aussie music. And um, he's, he's the best organised man I know in country music in Australia today. And he's a dear friend, and, but he is now, he's now on, on the rocks at uh, Tamworth with me and all the others. So wow. it, was a great, it was a great honour for me, a bit earlier than I should have got it. But I'm pleased to be there now, alongside people like well, all everyone on the rocks I know, I have known um, on a personal level, back to Slim and Joy and Buddy Williams and all those. The only one I didn't ever meet was Tex Morton. I spoke to Tex on the phone once, wow. but I didn't ever physically meet him. But he's he's the only one in um, country music recognised history that I didn't physically know. But all the other Smokey Dawson and uh, 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 John Williamson and uh, Stan Costa and uh, all those others. I've known them and worked with them and enjoyed uh, the fun of being around them. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> In 2000, you won Video Clip of the Year for your song, The Drover's Boy, at the uh, Country Music Awards of Australia. Um, we're just going to take a quick listen and then we're going to have a bit of a chat. Lord, 
They couldn't understand why the drover cried as they buried the drover's boy. For the drover had always seemed so hard to the men in his employ. A bolting horse and a stirrup lost and the drover's boy was dead. Shoveled dirt and a mumbled word And it's back to the road ahead And forget about the drover's boy They couldn't understand why the drover cut A lock of the dead boy's hair He put it in the band of his battered old hat As they watched him standing there And he told them, take the cattle on, I'll sit with the boy a while. A silent thought, a pipe to smoke, and it's ride another mile and forget about the drover's boy. Wow, that was fantastic, Ted. What can you tell me about the song? Well, it's the, it's the only gold guitar I've won, and I, uh, I didn't win it for the song itself. I won it for a video clip that I organised, oh. and uh, uh, but the it's it's a, a video clip covering the song itself, of course. But I recorded the Drover's Boy in 1981. Oh wow! As my contribution to the many hundreds of Aboriginal women and girls who, in the supposedly romantic days of uh, the cattle movements, the biggest cattle movements the world has ever known that took place in Northern Australia between 1880 and 1950. Um, I wrote my song as a tribute to them. And I was a finalist at Tamworth with my song in 82 or 83. I, I didn't win the award. Uh, but then about three years later, about 85, 86, John Williamson did a cover version of it. And he did win the gold guitar oh, for best, best best song. And at the awards, he said, he said this this gold guitar shouldn't go to me; it should go to Ted Egan. Now nowadays, there would there would be two gold guitars. There'd be one for John and one for me, as the writer of the song. Right. But uh, the next morning, having <laughs> he came around with the Long Yard pub in Tamworth where I was working, and he said, "I just came to give you your gold guitar." So I have I have three gold guitars on my shelf looking at me right now as I speak to you. And one is one is to awarded to John Williamson for his song The Drover's Boy, who was awarded to Ted Egan for the best video clip for The Drover's Boy. And three is the lifetime award uh, presented to uh, Gold Guitar presented to Ted Egan in twenty fourteen, uh, at a beautiful ceremony in wow. at Tamworth where 15,000 people stood and clapped and I felt suitably embarrassed by uh, by all the accolades and uh, it was a, a lovely night. And uh, again, I I said on the night there, there are people who've done it better than I, but I'm very happy to, to uh, take the award. And uh, yeah, so that's, that was my... The Drummer's Boy is probably the, the best known song that I've done on an international level. Because it, uh, people are aware of it around the, the you know, in various parts of the world, and uh, uh, a few other people have done cover versions. Reg Poole has, Tanya Kernigan has, uh, and I know a lot of people do it just as a, a straight poem, and that's fine as well. So, uh, 
I'm glad I wrote the song because it is a recognition of that amazing role that the women played, sometimes voluntarily, sometimes unwillingly, but uh, always with a great level of achievement and, as I discovered over many years, a great sense of pride in the knowledge that they had contributed so much to Australia's history. And they're still largely unrecognised and that's that's one of Australia's great pities that we don't don't have a you know a fair appraisal of who does what in our society it's usually the the more powerful people get the applause and the uh, the minor achievers get overlooked but uh, yeah. anyway uh, we're working towards a better life indeed in 1993 you were made a member of the order of australia and then in 2004 you were promoted to an officer of the order of australia can you tell me how these honors made you feel well, again, I, uh, I, you, you don't nominate yourself for the Order of Australia Awards, uh, uh, a, a body of people who are usually sworn to secrecy uh, combine to put in the nomination form. I, I, I nominate lots and lots of people every year for the award, uh, various, various awards. And uh, uh, so somebody who, I, to this day, I don't know who was on the panel of people that initiated this, but I was uh, very thrilled to be. The citation was uh, uh, awarded the Order of Australia uh, AM for services to the Aboriginal people of Australia and to a lasting place in the history and uh, history of Australia through song and verse. And then in 2003, I was appointed the administrator of the Northern Territory. Oh. <clears throat> At the end of my 30-year Ted Egan Outback Show era, uh, in 2003, I was appointed the administrator, which is the same as the governor. And, and uh, wow. so Neris and I went to live at Government House Darwin for the next four, four years and uh, had this uh, totally demanding but uh, ex such ex an exhilarating life because uh, there wasn't a negative second in the four years. and. My dear wife, Neris, who's uh, a good wordsmith, she said, this is a geriatric fairy tale. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we, we gave it all we had for four years, and it was, it was demanding seven days a week, but it was so fulfilling, and uh, we're so glad. We know we, we know we did a good job because we did our best, and that, that was appreciated because it's a very positive job where you, you come to realise just how many good people there are in the world, people constantly pinning medals on people and giving awards for wow. this level or that level or, or uh, bravery or, you know, long service. And you, it's just delightful. All, all I had to do was turn up in this flash, uh, flash set of clothes. And uh, I would quite often, uh, so I'd say, well, I'm not going to sing, I'm not going to give you a speech tonight, folks. I'm going to sing you a song <laughs> <laughs> at government house. And so, uh, and, you know, because I could, um, uh, you know, we one night we had the, the Fijian ambassador, for example, and so I sang, and he loved it. He And then he, uh, and a boring speech, he'd have heard all the boring speeches, but he, <laughs> he wouldn't have heard too many governors sing Isalei. Uh, and uh, uh, I delight, I, I'm not a, I, I'm not a, I love languages and I, I'm fascinated by languages because they're all so inexplicable and and so different. And you wonder why in the hell, 
why in the hell? And, uh, <laughs> and pe people think that I'm a lot better than I am, in fact, on languages. I can, I could, uh, I can, for example, sing about 20 songs I know in flawless German. Wow. And people, people hear me sing and they say, oh, she's bragging so good Deutsch. And, uh, but I say, no, I can, I'm not, can't really. I can sing, sing the song accurately because I've learned it accurately. But I can only just order two beers really in a, in a, life, in a <laughs> real life situation. But uh, oh. I, I can always order two beers. And, um, uh, so, uh, and with respect of Aboriginal languages, because I, I am fascinated by the fact that there are so many, they're all so different. And I have learned to small talk in a few languages, and I can, I can read and write two of the uh, traditional Australian languages extremely well, and I can deliver a speech which I sit down and I somewhat laboriously write from my knowledge, and I can deliver it, and I say, oh, gee, is, it, are you, is that your first language? And I said, no, I just delivered the speech. But uh, I, I love it, and uh, as Nera says, I'll be on my good parrot. <laughs> and uh, so... Uh, then, uh, as so as administrator, I would always seek to, if we had um, the Fijian man or the Welsh man, as my handwriting, and had I an unholy me, and uh, you know, in the English, the British consul would always like land of hope and glory, and uh, it works better than boring speeches. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I'll keep I'll keep saying wine, whether you want me to or not. <laughs> Fantastic! You have written ten books so far. Uh, what are these books about, and what is your latest book? The latest book was my autobiography called Outback Songman, and yes, it is available in uh, shops and uh, well, through mail order from me, uh, either as a real a paper book, a, uh, quite a lovely production by Alan and Unwin, and then I did it as a as a uh, audio book as well, oh. un under my own theme. So. Uh, that's available. That's the that's the last published one, and I've got to be uh, got to be a bit. Uh, uh, I have to tread warily here because oh, yeah. uh, I'm apparently the taste for content in books has has changed uh, drastically, and I have to acknowledge that Outback Songman was not as successful as Ellen and Unwin thought it would be. It was a good seller, but not uh, not a spectacular seller. Okay. Uh, whereas, whereas someone like Jimmy Barnes, and good on him, I love his work, and I love him. I've never met him, but I'd love to meet him. Uh, his his book has sold many, many thousands. Mine has sold of three to four or five thousand, something like that. Wow. And so it's I'm probably past the point of appeal with the books that I might write uh, because I, I tend to want to write about things like Aboriginal issues and, and uh, I'm told by publishers and various very knowledgeable people whose opinions I respect that uh, don't waste your time as a white fella writing about Aboriginal issues because anything you say will either be disbelieved or discarded or vilified or Treated, treated um, as though you're some uh, colonial wastrel, and um, it won't they won't be acted upon. Oh, wow. And I have to acknowledge that a book I wrote in 2008, uh, which was called Due Inheritance, uh, 
was the most was the most controversial book ever written in Australia huh. about about Aboriginal issues, and I wrote it feeling fairly confident that it would go well, and it sold okay, not not spectacular, but we didn't have a big budget, but it, it sold okay, but we couldn't get it reviewed anywhere. Nobody wanted to review it, and this book, the most controversial book ever written wow. on Aboriginal issues, has never. Uh, provoked uh, a statement of consequence for or against its contact, and you think, God, I wonder if anyone is aware of the of the comprehensive issues that Australia should confront, and if so, whether anyone's interested in doing anything about it. And mm. so that's a that's a mystery to me. But I have written history books. I've I've written illustrated song books. Uh, with all my faces of Australia album, like the Anzacs, the Overlanders, the Aboriginals, the Convicts, the Shearers, I wrote a detailed book because I, I needed to show that not only had I done the album of uh, uh, usually 15 or so songs, uh, but uh, I had researched the, the material in order to write the songs to a level that was uh, hopefully uh, worth recognising. But... Uh, they they still sell slowly, somewhat surely, but but the word is slowly, and uh, people are, are just uh, not not vitally interested, it seems, in in too many meaningful books. You know, people always go for a great novel or or a, a provocative book, and uh, but but mine, uh, I've got to say that uh, I've never had a rip roaring success of a book. Ever. Well, it sounds like that'll be a great read. I think I'm, I think I might place an order for one. This sounds very interesting. Well, the web page is tedegan.com.au. It's an easy web page, and they're all there. And that's where people can and, buy, and, I think, and, your music as well, and CDs, and. Well, in the and in the songbooks, people are delighted to find that uh, via Eric Kowalski, the my famous friend in WA. Uh, sheet music is there for the piano, guitars, whatever instrument you want to play. You just sit down there, just ready to play the song. Wow! And um, on that, oh, there, there's one I, I will throw in. No way. Oh uh, yeah. One, on on the Anzacs album, one of the most meaningful songs I wrote was titled "A Song for Grace." Now I said at the outset today that my mother's name was Grace. Brennan, who married Joe Egan, and my mum was Grace. I, I usually called her Grace, you know, rather rather than mum. I'd say, "Hi, Grace," you know? oh. and she she liked that because she had she had uh, nine brothers, and um, three of them went to the war, and one was killed. One died of his wounds at Gallipoli. He was uh, a stretcher bearer, a light horseman at Gallipoli without his horse, so he became a stretcher bearer, and he was he was he got shot badly uh, while he was out bringing another man to safety and um, he died of his wounds and uh, another brother was at Gallipoli and uh, he then went on to the Middle East but came back to Australia shell-shocked and the third brother was three years on the Western Front in France and was gassed and, and uh, really badly treated by the war although he came back very, very sane and married and had a happy family life. Uh, but his life was never quite the same again after the war. And my mum was the most anti-war person I ever met in my life. And she, 
after her death, sadly, I wrote the song A Song for Grace, wow. which Neris, Neris recorded, and it's probably the best song on the on the album. It's been it's been covered by uh, uh, Sarah Stora, who sold a hundred thousand of it. Wow! And uh, um, Tanya Kernigan still sings at most Anzac days, and it's it's getting a quite a bit of appreciable publicity on Anzac Days as an anti-war song, and that's what we need to be playing as much as uh, as a long way to Tipperary on, on Anzac Day. And, and uh, my We Are The Anzac song, but uh, the one that the one we should concentrate is uh, on is A Song For Grace. So that's all on the al- Anzac's album, and uh, that's perhaps the song that I'm most proud that I that I did write because it's dedicated to my wonderful mother. Wow, that sounds so nice, and I think that's a song that everyone should have listened to. And um, of course, they can find that from your website. It's yeah, uh, it, yeah. It's, it's on a, all my stuffs on iTunes. If people are into that uh, that uh, newfangled thing, I don't know how to work these new systems. But, I think uh, it's on I... the Spotify too. So people who are into the music streaming, they can look oh. it up on on um, Spotify. Oh, good. Thanks, Wayne. Yeah. Um, but pretty much wherever people can uh, get their music, I'm sure they'll find it. Um, now, it sounds like, Ted, in your life so far, that you have never stopped. Your life just sounds like a bundle of different things, you know, from different roles. And it sounds like you never really retired. It sounds like you've just been having fun and doing what you believe Yeah, in. I, I wouldn't contemplate the word retirement no. because a lot. I've been retired all my life in that I've uh, just concentrated on doing things that I enjoy doing. Wow. And, and the, the amazing thing is that people have paid me money to do all those things. So. <laughs> do you have any memorable stories that you'd like to share? Oh, that I went to Darwin and started uh, St. Mary's Footy Club. Wow. Uh, because so many things happened as a consequence. So even, yeah, you know, as, a, as a result, I was... Uh, recognized as a uh, a positive rather than a, a starry-eyed s- supporter of Aboriginal issues. But mm. I'm positive, pragmatic, and I don't uh, get carried away. And, uh, but I've recognized as a, a hopefully fair supporter of their quest in their quest for justice. And uh, um, so all of that's occurred as a consequence of the the footy contacts in the first days, yeah. Do you have any interesting things about you that not many people may know about? I'm pretty ordinary. i uh, born in Australia. I love Australia as a country, but I'm, I'm often critical of it. I think at the moment we've got a lot of things militating against a happy society in this country of ours, and uh, I'm very concerned about that. I am usually apolitical, but uh, I do contemplate political issues on a daily basis and uh, I write to a lot of people and I speak a lot among friends and to the to the right people and uh, so I'm always active even though I'm aware that there's not much point in in trying to foist my opinions on people who are not going to uh, uh, accept them and uh, but I nonetheless I put things down for posterity's sake and to get things off my chest and uh, so um, I uh, I'm sort of average uh, average looks average height uh, average level of intelligence and uh, 
um, but, uh, possessed of a great positive outlook and uh, a great zest for life as a consequence of the people who uh, have been part of my life with me, my brothers and sisters and my dear wife, Neris, and uh, uh, my children and uh, grandchildren and great-grandchildren, all of whom we're in wow. daily touch with. And uh, we all speak to one another and enjoy one another's company. And uh, uh, I've got a few health issues. I won't bore you with the detail of those, but I'm in um, in very good hands in all of those issues. And uh, so life goes on at 88. I, I don't want to live to 100 because I... <laughs> Uh, I, but I, I'd be, I can see a couple more. In fact, I'm looking, I think 2021 is going to be one of the busiest years of my entire life because I plan a tour of seeing up the Queensland coast from Brisbane to Cooktown. Wow. Uh, with, with Terry Gordon, the man I mentioned earlier. And, uh, then a trip to WA to record that musical. And a trip to Alice to Darwin in May this year, and all the writing that I do on a daily basis to ver uh, writing to various interested people and interesting people, and uh, on the issues that I find uh, need in need of uh, contemplation and study and research. Yeah. If you had your time again, Ted, would you change anything that's happened in your life? Oh yes, yeah, I do have quite a few things differently. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'd uh, in my in my bush career among Aboriginal uh, tribes, as we called them in those days, I would I was I was too imbued with the work ethic, and uh, I concentrated ever I went on and encouraging a white style work ethic and uh, at a place called Yundamu as an example in Central Australia I was there for four and a half nearly five years yeah. and uh, from these and these were pretty much still stone age people at the time a lot of them had bones through their noses and wow. massive massive scarification on their bodies and at night although they all wore clothes during that night everyone would take all their clothes off and sleep naked on the on the bare ground, oh, wow. and and that I, among them, I encouraged them to the notion of uh, starting their own construction of their own houses on their terms with their hands, and also the establishment of market gardens and outstations, and and uh, we by the end of my term, there we were running a very successful cattle station, and. Uh, but I, and I, I'm proud of all that I did in those days, but I, I didn't do what I had done in earlier days out in the bush where I had uh, just sat down and teach me some language, teach me some songs, and become familiar. I was always the boss, and that that was uh, quite an erroneous way of doing things, and I wouldn't wouldn't do that again. I'd be uh, who let's see, this is our team and. Uh, Let's work on the basis of consensus. And uh, but I used to get my uh, get my will across in this work ethic stuff because I had the key of the ration store. And uh, I, I won't say that I abused the power I had, but I did have considerable power that I like to think that I used 
beneficially and people still talk with great affection about those times when we ran the cattle and we don't why don't we do that anymore and that sort of thing and uh, so I'm proud of what I did but I'd have done it differently hmm. and uh, uh, especially concentrating on language because until until some white fellows and there are plenty of white fellows but until some white fellows learn to speak and seek to get into the minds and hearts of Aboriginal people they'll they'll never achieve what needs to be achieved because on their own aboriginals sadly are powerless they've got no money they've got no power and they la they're constantly being conned by white authorities governmental and otherwise and they uh, they are aware of their their uh, precarious and uh, unenviable position in life you know that you keep saying hearing people say well we're the worst educated, we're the least healthy, we're the most imprisoned and so on. And all of those facts are true. And uh, it's got to be better than that. And only they, with our assistance and our, our sympathy and pragmatism, can come to terms with those huge issues. It's the biggest social issue that Australia has. Mm. Wow, some, some really powerful words there, Ted. Now, this is my final question. I think I've said that once before, but... What do you think you'd like your legacy to be with all the work that you've achieved? Uh, I'm hopeful that the the hundreds of songs that I have written will not uh, just be screwed up into a bundle and chucked in the dump uh, when I die, but uh, that they'll be around and that um, uh, someone will sit down one day and seek to understand the the total works that I've had the opportunity to undertake in my 88 years of life and uh, my 70 odd years of living in the Northern Territory. And uh, so I, I, I'm very conscious of the word legacy and it's on my mind on a daily basis and uh, everything I do is uh, geared towards the, you know, the, the, the chance for my legacy to be a good one. Wow, fantastic. And just a reminder for our listeners, if they'd like to purchase any of these songs, your website is uh, tedegan.com.au. Yeah, ted, tedegan.com.au, yep. Well, thank you for your time today, Ted. I've learnt so much more than what the internet can uh, teach me, and it's been a pleasure, and thank you for your time, and all the best for the future. Well, and we good uh, to speak to someone in WA, because we'll be there, hopefully, in September, October, and... Uh, uh, the more people know about that, the better I'll like it because my musical is called Balls and Chains and it's written by the written about the convict era. Here's a question for you, Wayne. Oh, sure. Uh, something, something to throw to your lips. When did the last transported convict die in Australia? The last transport... Oh, I would be guessing, but maybe the night... Say the early 1900s? 1938. 1938. Wow. He was he was trans. He was a fellow named Samuel Speed. He was transported to Western Australia oh. uh, in the 1850s, late 1850s, uh, for burning a haystack somewhere in the UK. Gee. And he, he died. He didn't die in WA, but he's he's the last transported convict to die in Australia. So there you go, Wayne. That's the end of our interview. <laughs> Fantastic there, Ted. Well, that was a pleasure today.
Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please head to waneswonderworld.com and please feel free to follow me on my Facebook page, which is Wayne's Wonderworld.